I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're joined by Jess Braven to talk about the Supreme Court's punt on political gerrymandering, Florida Man's second SCOTUS win, and some new grants. The Supreme Court released five opinions on Monday of this week. There are 14 cases remaining, but before we dig into the decisions, I'd like to welcome our guest, Jess Braven. He's the Supreme Court correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. Jess, thanks for joining us for a second time on SCOTUS 101. Uh, always fun. So let's get into the decisions. First up, the court decided the long-awaited partisan gerrymandering case, Gill versus Whitford. This was a challenge to Wisconsin's statewide legislative redistricting plan. Twelve Democratic voters sued, arguing that the Republican-controlled legislature cracked and packed Democratic voters to maximize the number of seats Republicans could capture. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the opinion for the court, holding that the challengers failed to demonstrate Article III standing by not showing a particularized injury. The voters asserted a somewhat novel theory known as the efficiency gap to support their claims of unconstitutional gerrymandering. Under this theory, you compare each party's respected wasted votes uh, across all legislative districts. So this means votes cast for a losing candidate or votes cast for a winning candidate in excess of what he or she needed to win. The challengers argued that by wasting Democratic votes, the state violated their First Amendment associational rights and their 14th Amendment right to equal protection. Now, for the past five decades, the court has been asked to decide what judicially enforceable limits, if any, the Constitution sets on partisan gerrymandering. Previous cases have left few clear landmarks for addressing the question and generated conflicting views of how to conceive of the injury and the appropriate role of the courts in remedying that injury. So the challengers here alleged a statewide injury to the Democratic Party, not a specific injury tied to the legislative districts in which they reside and vote. The fundamental shortcoming of their lawsuit is that their claim is about the political, the group political interests, not individual legal rights. The court remanded back to the Wisconsin District Court to give the challengers the opportunity to prove a concrete and particularized injury to their individual right to vote. Justice Thomas concurred, joined by Gorsuch, saying that the case should be remanded with instructions to dismiss for lack of jurisdiction. He explained that that's the usual practice and the challengers had more than ample opportunity to prove their standing in the year and a half of litigation before the district court. Justice Kagan also concurred, and that concurrence was joined by Ginsburg, Breyer, and Sotomayor, asserting that partisan gerrymandering is incompatible with democratic principles and that partisan officials are degrading the nation's democracy. So, Jess, I want to bring you in on this now. What's your take on the decision? Were you surprised by this outcome? You know, by this point, I was not surprised given how long the court had taken to reach these decisions and given the way that the arguments went. Mm -hmm. But before the arguments uh, had taken place, I would have been quite stunned because, uh, you know, the, the, the court signaled it was interested in these cases. Uh, in fact, both these cases were essentially designed at the invitation of Justice Kennedy from, you know, 2004 when he laid out some ideas that occurred to him on how you might uh, craft a, uh, a cognizable claim here. So in a sense, there's a kind of, you know, Lucy moving the football uh, type of <laughs> phenomenon where the court sends signals about what it is interested in hearing. And then uh, because, of course, there was the, the companion case from Maryland, which was uh, the, the Republican voters complaining about being uh, cheated of a, a congressional seat by the, the, the Democrats in Annapolis. Uh, and that case, too, was specifically designed in response to something Justice Kennedy had written about a type of First Amendment claim. And once again, they said, nope, not ready. Sorry. So, uh, yes, it was a surprise. I mean, it suggests that, you know, when it comes to actually laying down a rule, uh, 
Justice Kennedy, at least, uh, simply isn't there yet. And still, when you've got seven votes leaving the door open, now maybe uh, you know uh, the, the door is wider open with Justice Kagan than it might be with, with the Chief Justice, <laughs> but at least on paper, that door is still open for them to come back. Uh, and we heard the, uh, the lawyer, uh, Paul Smith, for the Wisconsin uh, uh, challengers saying he's going to go get more plaintiffs from each district, and he's going to try to follow the court's instructions again and then you know, I guess he'll he'll come back and they'll have then they'll then they'll change the <laughs> instructions for him. Uh, so yes, it was a surprise. It was very frustrating for people who are looking for a resolution to this issue. I think whatever they feel about uh, 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 redistricting and how much uh, discretion the political branches should have. Uh, and uh, you know, I wonder if in the back of their minds, at least for say Justice Kennedy was the fact that despite these purported uh, uh, Republican firewalls uh, in a number of states. Uh, a lot of Republican state legislators have lost their seats in special elections and, and by-elections since the Trump vote, suggesting that uh, you know these gerrymanders aren't foolproof. Much as uh, you know, prior gerrymanders that the Democrats tried, you know, were overcome uh, during you know prior Republican waves. So that maybe that influenced the court in some at least subconscious way because it kind of undercut the theory that oh, you can never. Uh, uh, get around these these impregnable districts. Yeah. And what do you make of Justice Kennedy not writing a concurrence or or anything here? You know, given his concurrence in the Viath case, uh, it it seemed surprising that he didn't have anything to say at this point. It is strange, you know, and as uh, because, again, this is an area where he's, as you say, he's been, you know, quite, uh, quite uh, 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 influential. And I wonder, you know, as as we try to put this in the bigger context of what's, you know, what's Tony up to? Uh, there are a number of different ways you can read it. Uh, you know, one one theory I heard was uh, maybe he is planning to hang it up very soon and is leaving this case, this issue, uh, and perhaps the, uh, you know, the conflict between uh, 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 religious exercise and uh, and the state, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, gay uh, rights uh, ordinance uh, or, or statute, uh, you know, for, for someone else. Maybe he's saying, I've done my work and I'm leaving these issues for, for the next uh, contestant. But, uh, you know, who, who who can really say? The next contestant. I like that. Uh, yeah. So basically the, the court has kicked, kicked the issue, uh, kicked the can down the road. And I suppose if Kennedy is still on the court and, and either the Wisconsin case returns or another case comes up, I think Kennedy will still be searching for that elusive, judicially manageable standard. Yeah. One last thought on this, if, if, if yeah. there's time, which is that, you know, during the uh, oral argument of the Maryland case, which which is based on a First Amendment theory that uh, that the the, the legislature uh, controlled by Democrats in Annapolis retaliated against Republicans in the uh, sixth uh, district in, in Maryland, uh, essentially because they voted Republican. And that is why they took away their ability to elect their representative. A theory, by the way, that none of the actual plaintiffs the who I spoke to had any idea was their theory and didn't actually <laughs> believe that it was that they were being punished, you know, in a sort of punitive way. They just thought they just want to elect another. I mean, it was they didn't think that it was like some kind of, you know, value. Ju- it was they were just they just can do it. So they're doing it. not they're hurting us. You know, their goal is not to hurt. You know. But anyway, that was that's the, the lawyers came up. Yes, with that. <laughs> yes, that's the thing that often happens in a lot of cases, I guess. Um, but uh, but all this time, we've been waiting for another case that's been on the pile at the Supreme Court conference, and that's the North Carolina case uh, involving partisan redistricting. And that case maybe answers the, 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 the idea that Justice Breyer had at the Maryland argument, which was, you know, all these different gerrymandering cases raise different theories and have different facts. But what if the theory in one case really makes more sense for a different case? And how can we can't see them all in once? And 
he uh, very professorially suggested, let's just get out the old drawing board and yeah. <laughs> have like a seminar and kind of work it out that way. And no one seemed to, you know, bite at the idea of being uh, his pupils for uh, such uh, uh, an academic exercise. But, you know, the North Carolina case comes closer to bringing up more issues. It doesn't have a number of the purported uh, procedural flaws that the Supreme Court suddenly discovered when they had to uh, vote on the decision. Uh, so maybe that case they decided is the better vehicle and, they, and, and the people who are preparing it on both sides have now somewhat more information about what the court is concerned about. And so maybe uh, we'll get a grant very soon in that North Carolina case and this issue will be back uh, on the next docket, potentially giving them time to give us a decision prior to the next round of redistricting after 2020. So the issue is uh, not going away. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the second gerrymandering case, Benesek versus Lamone, and the court issued a per curiam opinion there, finding that the district court didn't abuse its discretion in denying a preliminary injunction to Republican voters in Maryland challenging the Democratic legislator's map. Um, but again, the court didn't reach the, the merits of the unconstitutional gerrymandering claims. So what happens next in, in these cases, and will they affect um, districts heading into the midterm elections in November? No, they're not going to affect districts heading into the midterm elections. The, uh, the uh, uh, Republican-drafted map in Wisconsin stays in effect, and the Democratic – that's for the state assembly – and the Democratic-drafted uh, House map in Maryland stays in effect uh, going into the November election. But what was interesting, this came up at the argument as well in the uh, Benesek, the Maryland case. Some of the justices complained like, why are you waiting so long? It's now, you know, March, you know, April. It's too late to, to mm -hmm. bring up this, you know, make any ruling in time for the election. I thought to myself, well, well whose fault is that? Because the plaintiff's lawyer uh, back last September, you know, filed a, a, a letter, a motion or something with the court asking them to expedite the hearing and hear it on the same day as the Wisconsin case and recommended <laughs> that they schedule an argument on both cases together in early November. So in a sense, offering the opportunity to consider all these things that they're now complaining they didn't have a chance to consider. So uh, in, their, in their per curiam, they said, well, you could have filed this uh, case you know, several years earlier and this theory about the First Amendment only came up relatively recently. But the fact is that that map in Maryland was challenged immediately, as almost every partisan map is, mm -hmm. by Republican voters. Uh, first, they put a referendum on the ballot to invalidate it, but um, they lost. Uh, in other words, the voters ratified the, the gerrymander. Uh, and then they said, well, it wasn't a fair vote because the Secretary of State wrote a misleading ballot. Anyway, <laughs> as you know, this is not an area where there's a lot of agreement. But in any event, uh, yeah, those – uh, we will see no change in either of those two contested uh, 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 political maps. I think there was there is one point of agreement. I believe this was Justice Alito that said this in it might have been the Benesek argument and maybe it was it, it was Gill. But he said something along the lines of nobody likes gerrymandering, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily unconstitutional. But anyway, moving on, the court also decided two cases dealing with the sentencing guidelines, which we're not going to get into uh, one one point, though. We, oh, have to, okay. we have to say one little point, Okay. partly because uh, I, I'm quite proud of this extremely fascinating exclusive I did when I got to interview Rod Rosenstein before his maiden argument at the yeah. Supreme Court. Yeah. Uh, and as you know, one of the many, many, many privileges of being deputy attorney general is uh, you get to argue a case at the Supreme Court if you want. And he mm -hmm. asked uh, Solicitor General Francisco, I want to argue your most important case. And he must have misheard him. <laughs> 
because instead uh, he gave him maybe their least important case of this term, <laughs> an extremely minor uh, sentencing I- issue that doesn't come up very often. And in this individual case, it basically was a difference of like eight months in prison for a meth dealer before he is deported. So uh, he doesn't, you know, when he's released, he doesn't stay in America anyway. Uh, but Rod Rosenstein, uh, be- with all the extra time on his hands, uh, was able to prepare quite expertly for that argument, and he did a fine, fine job. He was only stumped, I think, once during the the argument, I think, by Justice Kagan, and uh, pulled out a uh, a victory. I think it was a, was it a five to three, or I think it was five to three victory with Justice Breyer uh, writing for the uh, for the majority. So. Uh, watch out, you know, don't get on Rod's bad side. (laughs) Paul Clement better watch out. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, the court also decided Lozman versus City of Riviera Beach, which is the Florida man case, and it is a retaliatory arrest case. So, Tiffany, what happened there? Yeah, the court held 8-1 for Fane Lozman, making this his second Supreme Court win. He's an outspoken critic of the city of Riviera Beach's plan to seize, under eminent domain, waterfront homes for private development. And he alleged that the city had a plan to intimidate, harass, and retaliate against him. So after he was removed from a city council meeting and arrested, he filed suit under Section 1983. But the district court instructed the jury that Lozman had to prove lack of probable cause for his arrest. And the appeals court agreed, and the Supreme Court took up the case. So in this opinion, written by Justice Kennedy, the court vacated and remanded emphasizing that the issue here is narrow since Lozman's arrest was pursuant to an official city policy motivated by retaliation, making this different from the typical retaliatory arrest claim or case where an officer alone is at fault. For that reason, the court remanded the case to be considered under the standard established in Mount Healthy City Board of Education versus Doyle, and that case dealt with um, firing of a public school uh, teacher. Thomas wrote a dissent noting that no one briefed, argued, or even hinted at the rule that the court announced today. Instead of dreaming up our own rule, I would have answered the question presented and held that the plaintiffs must plead and prove lack of probable cause as an element of a First Amendment retaliatory arrest claim. So, so Je- yeah, oh, Jess, sorry, what's Jess, your take? Yeah, what's your take? And uh, do you think well, we'll hear from Fane Lozman again? You know, uh, it's hard to make predictions, but in this case I will, and I'm certain that we will because, you know— there are many, many, many reasons people love to uh, hold uh, extremely low-paid uh, uh, elective offices in local government. The you know the many honors, the parades, the tribute you receive, and your you know your weight in gold each year. And one of the many, many, many privileges you have of being on a city council or school board is being able to hear the voice of the people when they come to the public comment period and speak. Uh, you know, for, you know, five or six hours about anything that happens to be on their mind. When I was uh, in high school, I was a student member of the school board in my town, and we got to listen to a lot of people who had many, many things on their minds, including their view of the ethics of those of us sitting uh, on the other side of the uh, lectern. Uh, And Fane Lozman is one of the great Americans who exercises his First Amendment rights to petition his government and express his views. Uh, And that is what he was doing uh, when he appeared, as he did apparently every week before the Riviera Beach City Council, to share his opinion about their moral character and their uh, various motivations for why they were doing things he didn't like. Uh, And when he strayed off topic, uh, the city council uh, told him, you know, stay on topic or get out. And uh, he didn't either and was arrested. So that's what happened to him. And he does not challenge that there was probable cause to arrest him for 
uh, violating their rules, saying that you've got to talk about things that are actually related to the city when you address the city council. So that is one of the, the, the curious factual issues here. Does the fact that he concedes there was probable cause to arrest him uh, uh, you know, uh, defeat his claim that they also really, really don't like him and are really happy if something bad happens to him and allegedly uh, conspired or at least uh, adopted a, you know, a uh, de facto uh, policy of trying to punish him in some way for expressing his views of them? So that, it's a very interesting case. He's a, uh, a, one of the great characters to come up before the Supreme Court, not at all a boring accountant or anything like that. And it's, uh, it's uh, interesting to see sometimes these important constitutional questions uh, presented in this way. And uh, Fain, uh, he's, he's, he's two for two. Uh, why stop there? <laughs> so the court also granted five new cases this week, uh, including Sturgeon versus Frost. And this is a dispute over control of private land located within the boundaries of the national park system in Alaska. This is the second time this case has been up to the Supreme Court, and it involves moose hovercraft law uh, brought by our friends at Consovoy McCarthy Park. And then the sec- a second case is Tim's versus Indiana, which deals with incorporation of the Eighth Amendment's excessive fines clause brought by the Merry Band of Libertarian Litigators at the Institute for Justice. Now, I'd point out the full case name for this one. I love these asset forfeiture cases. It is Tyson Timms and a 2012 Land Rover LR2 versus the state of Indiana. Hmm. Uh, So the Supreme Court has incorporated most of the Bill of Rights. Uh, Jess, do you think there's any reason the court took this case other than to incorporate the excessive fines clause? Well, they certainly want to address that. I mean, you had the the lower court, the Indiana, I guess, Supreme Court, uh, finding that the fines aspect of the Eighth Amendment was not incorporated, while, of course, the cruel and unusual punishments is, and I guess excessive bail is, but the excessive fines is not in the view of uh, of the, the Indiana Supreme Court. And I think that, you know, it is a good question. I mean, there's some, there are some aspects of the Bill of Rights that the Supreme Court has chosen not to incorporate. For example, the rules about jury trials that mm-hmm. apply, you know, uh, you know, some states uh, don't have as extensive right to jury trial as others, and the court seems to be okay with that. Uh, the fines uh, case, though, is interesting because it comes at a, not just as a you know sort of standalone issue, but it's become an, uh, it's become a, really a public policy question about fines and our fines being used for purposes uh, beyond uh, you know uh, you know behavior modification. I mean, are they being used for? revenue? Are they being used to target certain populations? Are they being applied in a way that's very unfair? Uh, you know, because fines, unlike, say, jail time, uh, does have a disproportionate effect if you don't have a lot of money. You know, I mm-hmm. mean, you know, everyone has the same amount of time if you're stuck in, in jail. But, you know, if you are, you know, and then if you can't pay your fine, if the fine then increases, and you know, there, there are certain issues related to the, uh, the you know, fines and uh, that, I think are, is, are important for the court to address and give some clarity to, to lower courts. And also, I think, to give some clarity for um, legislators on the state uh, and local level in particular who may be having to make some decisions here. And I think the courts, uh, you know, in, look at what the constitutional rules here are may give some clarity because some of it will be a policy choice for those uh, lawmakers. Some, for some of them, this may be something they're not really considered. I think there's a lot there for them to think about. So I have to say personally, uh, I think that is one of the more interesting constitutional questions to arise. Uh, uh, it's it's a great question for, for us as reporters because, as you can see by who's bringing the case, it's one that's not a 
stereotype, ideological, left-right kind of thing. You know, it gives us a chance to really get into, well, what what is this right about? Mm-hmm. And is this the kind of thing that we know what the, you know, framers thought of it? Is it what the, what the you know, 14th Amendment drafters and ratifiers, was? The, is this the sort of thing they were considering when they thought about uh, privileges and immunities and due process and equal protection? So uh, is, this an, is this an incorporated right? Uh, I think that's a, a great question. I'm really glad that you, uh, you flagged it for listeners to, to keep an eye out for it. Yeah. Do you think uh, there might be a group out there, people for the incorporation of the Third Amendment? Yeah. Yeah. I'm really surprised that no one's taken up this cause. You know, well, it's interesting you should say that because uh, in in, uh, in college, uh, I had like this idea of how to finance it by creating a, you know, a, a, a political action committee, three pack, uh, that, you know, and it would talk about, you know, our success, uh, you know, over, you know, in, uh, in defending the, the Third Amendment. But, you know, uh, freedom isn't free. Yeah. And uh, hoping that people could support us. So, uh, yeah, we haven't seen that happen yet. But, um, you know, uh, well, you know, if, if for example, uh, if there isn't, you know, the National Guard is more active at the border and they need a place to sleep, you know, maybe we'll see some good Third Amendment cases coming up. I think it's the ABA that called the Third Amendment the runt piglet of the Constitution. <laughs> it's pretty apt. Yeah. Um, but th- there was there was one case dealing with. Uh, Third Amendment incorporation. I think it was the the Second Circuit. Never, never up right? to the Supreme Court. Yeah, yeah. never up to the Supreme Court. Oh, but there was a Second Circuit case. But it was it was also cited in, in Youngstown. Se- yeah, the steel yeah. seizure case. Can you tell we looked at the Wikipedia page for the Third Amendment? <laughs> no, that is great. Uh, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah, I suppose like if people get if like you know scholars get assigned different amendments to write chapters on, like that's that's the mm-hmm. you know that's the the dog of the of the pack there. Um, yeah, no, although um, as, a, as a close second to the Third Amendment is the Twelfth Amendment. And I did actually get to write a Twelfth Amendment story a few years ago. Really? Uh, maybe you recall uh, that uh, 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 President Bush's um, uh, initially nominated uh, Harriet Myers, his uh, White House counsel, for a vacancy on the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. uh, Justice O'Connor's uh, old seat. Uh, and there were complaints by some thoughtful people uh, that she lacked experience in constitutional law. Mm-hmm. And I discovered that's not true. She actually argued a 12th Amendment case at the Fifth Circuit. And uh, I wrote a, a page one story uh, uh, going into that case, and I interviewed the parties, and, uh, and she won. So I thought she may be – I said, I think, you know, I try not to be opinionated, but I said, you know, she may be the greatest 12th Amendment expert ever <laughs> – to sit on the Supreme Court. And sadly, we will never, or at least we don't know, I mean, who knows about the future, but at least for now, we won't, we won't know if that, uh, you know, what she could have brought to that, that area of law. Well, we're going to have to dig up that, that article and we'll tweet it out from the SCOTUS 101 <laughs> account. That sounds great. So what predictions do you have for the remaining cases? Do you think we're going to get more half-baked decisions like Gill and, and Masterpiece? Ah, uh-huh, nice, nice. I know. Call uh, me Ilya Shapiro. Uh, <laughs> you know, those were... Somewhat unsatisfying decisions, uh, or do you think we're going to get some actual blockbusters? Well, I think that the uh, the remaining, you know, the, the three cases that are, I guess, maybe most on my mind right now, uh, I think are less likely to uh, lead to this type of uh, sort of uh, punt. Uh, you know, one uh, of course is the, uh, the, the the Janus case, the uh, the, the public employee union fees case. I mm-hmm. mean. Court, you know, you know, much as much as Justice uh, Kennedy over the years sort of laid the groundwork for progressing uh, his, his gay rights uh, jurisprudence, uh, Justice Alito he has similarly laid the groundwork for this uh, First Amendment uh, uh, view of um, 
of uh, uh, union uh, compulsory union dues or fees for, for public employees, and it seems like this is a, a, a you know, almost a fait accompli. So we don't know why it's taken them so long. You think they could just have hit you know print? You know, I've given that there were two prior cases on the same topic that went bust, but. Uh, that seems to be pretty clear unless there was a very, very strange change inside the court. Uh, another one, also the, the internet tax. That one, whatever they decide, this is the, the uh, whether states can... can the Wayfair can, case. Right, the Wayfair case. Whether the states can uh, uh, require out-of-state merchants to collect sales tax for them. This tax is not lawful. It's the collection issue, which is uh, here. You know, there certainly are some votes on the court we know for sure who were uh, who, who want to overturn their, uh, their their Quill decision from the early 90s that mm-hmm. uh, had a dormant commerce clause uh, approach. Uh, I couldn't count to five at the argument, um, so I don't know what they're going to ultimately say on that. Uh, I think we'll see, though, you know, pretty sharp uh, opinions uh, in both sides, however it comes out. And then finally, there's the, you know, and I think maybe this will come on the last day, is the, the, the Carpenter case involving mm-hmm. the cell phone tracking and I expect that that one, I mean, uh, you know, uh, I, uh, I don't like to make uh, uh, wrong predictions, uh, <laughs> but maybe I, maybe I will be wrong. I mean, I think that that one has the hallmarks of being uh, one that would come on the last day, uh, be unanimous opinion by the Chief Justice, because one area that he has really tried to make his own has been adapting, uh, you know, the Bill of Rights to technological mm-hmm. developments. We've seen him write in, in uh, you know, previously the uh, uh, the the, uh, the, um, the the warrantless cell phone search uh, cases uh, from uh, California and, and, and Massachusetts, and it seems to me that this is an issue that he sees as his sort of area of interest and expertise. Again, it's one that's not ideological in the same way that others are. It gives him a chance to sort of show uh, people with different perspectives on the court kind of uh, coming together in. Uh, reinvigorating the Bill of Rights. It just seems like that's what I would expect, and I think he would like to, you know, have the term end on a, uh, you know, a broad consensus uh, type of opinion, preferably written by him. So <laughs> that's a that is a hunch. What what's what what are your predictions? You've been watching as closely as me. Well, Janice, I mean, the big question mark there is Justice Gorsuch. We don't. He didn't say anything at the oral argument, mm-hmm. and it's kind of hard to tell from his background where he would be. I think we have, you know, an inclination that he's likely to rule with the conservative block. I mean, that's where I think the smart money is. And again, in the Wayfair case, we know where Gorsuch is. He he wrote that, uh, I believe it was a concurrence at the uh, the Tenth Circuit in, in the direct marketing case. Uh, and that was the one where, where Kennedy wrote his concurrence saying, you know, I'm not so sure about this Quill case. Maybe we should revisit this. Um, so I, I think... Uh, you know, I think we know where Gorsuch is on on that one, at least. And yeah, I think Carpenter is probably the the longest outstanding case at this point now that Gill has been decided. So you wonder why it's taking them so long. But I think you you, you have good instincts on saying that uh, Chief Justice Roberts may want to to write that one. So I don't know. We'll see. I'm interested to um, see how NIFLA will come out. I know there's yes. some. Some yeah. chatter on on Twitter that uh, Justice Thomas might have the opinion in that case, and you know, initially after the argument, a lot of people thought, well, the court will will split the baby here. Just I know it's a terrible, oh, it's um, a terrible pun. in in this in this case, but um, you know, between the licensed and the the unlicensed uh, facilities. But with Thomas writing, I wonder if that will will still be the case. 
Yeah, no, that is a great question. That's uh, that's the, the case about whether uh, California violates uh, First Amendment rights of, uh, I guess, uh, uh, non-abortion providing crisis pregnancy centers by requiring mm-hmm. them to post certain disclosures. Uh, and uh, well, the, I think they're they're you know seeing how that how that plays with their you know compelled speech and free speech jurisprudence, how that fits with uh, with their uh, uh, their uh, Rumsfeld versus Fair uh, opinion involving you know what whether law schools can be you know mm-hmm. compelled to uh, provide uh, access for military recruiters. I mean, I, I, there there are a lot of very very interesting aspects of that case. Uh, but yes, they do try to uh, you know equally apportion those opinions, and mm-hmm. uh, Thomas is due for one. And of the cases remaining from the sitting, that seems to be the one. And the question is, well, what if they can't you know coalesce around uh, around a, a majority there. I mean, it seems like it's one that maybe could have, you know, some pl- plurality opinion. Even. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at, after the argument, it seemed like a number of the liberal justices were were troubled by particularly the uh, the idea that these centers might have to put up a, a billboard sized mm-hmm. uh, disclosures to go along with if they ran a billboard advertising their clinics. So uh, that's one we're definitely watching closely. Uh, but we have a listener question that okay. we wanted to get your thoughts on. Yeah. So Eric Mounts from Northern Kentucky asked us to talk about the timeline for cases at the Supreme Court. So he wants to know what happens after a case is argued. So why does it take so long for decisions to come out once an opinion drafting starts and justices are persuaded to join the majority or dissent? And basically, how do they know when they're done with the drafting? <laughs> Well, I think they're done when everyone is satisfied with it, of course. I think they, they have a, a general schedule within the court about when things are supposed to come. And we know that at the end of the term, there are some internal deadlines. We know that majority opinions are all due at the end of May. Uh, and we know that dissenting opinions are all due in the middle of June. Uh, and that's their rule. And the, you know, the indications are from the court that they have been very good about meeting it, uh, even though it, I'm sure it's been painful for some of them at, at, at some times. So that is the schedule for the end of the term where they've really got to get their act together and get everything out. The current chief justice, uh, like his predecessor, does not like cases to linger. He has not have had any carryover. He hasn't had any re-argued because they ran out of time. They've had mm-hmm. some re-argued because they wanted to see new issues addressed, but not because they ran out of time, which they sort of used to. Somebody tweeted recently a uh, an old note uh, that uh, that uh, then Justice uh, Rehnquist right had uh, had had written right like I would I object to this but you know since it's June I'll join your opinion. Yeah, I, I uh, thought it was uh, Justice Marshall. Oh, was it Thurgood Marshall? I okay, think so. we'll have to fact yeah. check that. Okay. We'll get our yeah. fact checker John okay. Malcolm on it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so so the schedule is so now within the court, of course, they have a conference at the end of each uh, week uh, generally that they hear argument, and that's where they take a straw vote on the outcome of a case. Uh, and that is when uh, – and then uh, shortly afterwards, uh, I understand, not at the conference itself, but uh, within a couple of days, the, the chief justice or the, uh, the senior uh, justice of the majority uh, assigns the opinion to the, 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 the justice who he thinks is you know, most likely to you know, command the majority and also whose turn it is because that is also a, a factor in it. Uh, and then they have to – Write something that are you know people will agree with, and there is back and forth. And I think that in general they share uh, all their memos to each other with everyone. There aren't a lot of secret uh, uh, negotiations, as far as I know. Well, it's all secret to me. But it's, uh, <laughs> uh, so that you know it takes time. It takes time to get you know nine or five or six or however many to agree, and then people write responses. And of course, 
if you write a dissenting opinion, then the majority writes their response to your dissent. And, you know, that's why you get those, for example, those wonderful uh, battling footnotes between Scalia and Stevens over the years. <laughs> so that effort takes uh, it takes time. That's why it goes back and forth. Some opinions do come faster than others when it's relatively easy. Some look, you know, pretty short uh, and that suggests they're not spending as much time on it. But maybe that's not necessarily a, a terrible thing because, uh, you know, it, it's been suggested that some of these very, very long opinions and these uh, single justice uh, concurring opinions, uh, you know, maybe that suggests you know, they have too much time on their hands because, you know, what, what's a single <laughs> justice opinion really worth, you know, in most instances? Like who's, you know, if, if the other eight members of the court don't agree, I mean, what's, who, who is that helping uh, exactly other than your biographer? So the, the, uh, you know that it's, and the and the work shows. I mean, like like a lot of jobs, uh, you can read those opinions and make a judgment about how well they come out. So I would say, again, writing takes time. Writing well takes even more time, uh, uh, as you can tell by the, how my quickly written stories read. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so, but they do have a schedule and they try to keep to it. And I'd say, while it does take time to write it, it's more impressive that they get it all done at the end of the year. I mean, I would yeah. really say I'd flip the question around. And say, you know, they managed, and they're quite proud of it, to get their work done at the end of each year. What about the branch of government across the street? You know, what about, you know, all kinds of other uh, organizations and, and people? So, mm -hmm. um, uh, yes, that's, you know, that's that's it. And you got to get a lot of smart people to, you know, agree or at least accept, uh, you know, that their points have been made. Yeah. Well, we'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia repeat SCOTUS players edition in light of Florida man's second win <laughs> and the return of the Alaska uh, moose hovercraft case. Uh, so I'm going to try to stump our guest, Jess Braven and Tiffany is going to be a lifeline. Cause she yes, did I was not, not privy to the question. She was not privy to the questions. So first question, this woman appeared before the Supreme court twice in a case challenging her conviction for violating the chemical weapons treaty. Oh, yes. Um, Trying to remember her name. I mean, I can tell you the case very well. Uh, she, she was the, uh, the woman from the, from, uh, uh, the Caribbean uh, who, uh, who was angry at her friend who had had an affair and also a child with her husband uh, and retaliated against her by putting some caustic chemicals on her doorknob, uh, <laughs> triggering what some people decided was a bit of federal overreach. Uh, and, <laughs> uh, and that came twice. Once uh, it was remanded back to the Third Circuit. But I'm trying to remember her name. What is, what is the name in that case? That is where you got me. Um, she has the same last name as a famous action movie International hero. spy. Uh, international spy Bond. Yes. Bond. Caroline. Right. Caroline. That's right. Yes. Bond. Well, Caroline Bond. Well done. And perhaps the uh, the the first and only love triangle to to reach the Supreme Court. Probably well, not. Probably not. No. They have all those. You know. Well, they denied the the, oh, the polygamy no, cases. True. But you know, Jonathan Turley is trying to get get one up there. Yeah. Okay. Next question. How many times has the Supreme Court ruled on a challenge to the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare? You mean the whole thing or an aspect of it? Because we've got the NFIB case. I'm going to keep it one. vague. Okay, there's the NFIB case. Then there is the, uh, the uh, follow-on uh, case about uh, uh, the, uh, the contraceptive mandate. Mm -hmm. uh, and... 
what else uh, on the on the Affordable Care Act? Uh, is that it? Are there just those two? Is there one more? One more? Uh, um, oh, uh, um, the exchanges. Yes, right, right, right. The the um, the the uh, state exchanges, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, uh, and what was it? is that? That's a separate case from NFIB. Mm-hmm. Okay, the state exchanges are they? Um, right, right. Okay, right. That's right. There was the first one that upheld it as a tax, and there was mm-hmm. the second one that the uh, state uh, exchanges are not uh, uh, are are funded that the, the language of the statute was not written in a way that makes them unfunded. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there was the uh, the contraceptive mandate case. But there was two of those. Two contraceptive mandate cases? Yes. Conestoga uh, and uh, Hobby Lobby. Well, well those, those are the same cases. And the, and the, little, uh, and the, and the little sisters uh, uh, and uh, Arch, uh, you know, yes. Bishop of... of Zubik. Uh, yes. Okay, so you, you finally got around. <laughs> so there were four, although there have been several other challenges that the Supreme Court has either not decided to take up the origination clause case. Uh, there, there's the current one that Texas is spearheading mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in light of the, the new tax reform law. Uh, so there are plenty of other challenges out there, but four that the Supreme Court has ruled on. So good job, guys. Third question. Who has argued the most cases at the Supreme Court? Ever. Who's alive or ever? I believe this is ever. Well. I'm pretty sure. Of alive, I would say Ed Needler. That's correct, alive. and I, I, I'll need to double check, but I believe he has argued the most ever, in addition to being the most currently alive. Do you know how many he's argued? Can he, you can you is, guess? He has argued over a hundred, but I don't know exactly how many more over a hundred. Yeah, so he's uh, over a hundred and thirty now. Hundred and thirty. Yeah, wow. yeah. Paul Clement uh, trailing behind him at uh, just over ninety. Uh, but he's argued the most since anyone um, it, since 2000. Uh, Has Paul beaten Carter Phillips, who used to hold that title? Yes. Wow. Well, at least according to his his law firm bio page, yeah. Since 2000, he's mm. argued more than any other lawyer in and out of government. Uh, and the woman who's argued the most at the Supreme Court, do you know who that is? She's a friend of the podcast, and we're we're, we're kind of obsessed with her. We're groupies. Lisa Blatt. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> She's argued uh, 34 cases. so And one, I think, all but one of them, right? I think her record is 32 out of 34 or okay. 33 out of 34. Yeah. yeah. We'll get John Malcolm, our fact checker, uh-huh. on that again. Well, and, and, and also, like, I have to say, this I, I don't remember this happening before. During the, the travel ban arguments, Justice Breyer actually referred to the Lisa Blatt brief. Yes. Yeah. You know, like, I don't know if the, like, as to the author of the brief as opposed to the party. So that yeah. was, that was uh, quite a quite a Quite a cue. Yeah, that's how we think of briefs, I that's guess, true. sometimes when someone like Lisa writes one. Okay, next question. Which state has been a direct party in more suits before the Supreme Court than any other since 1946. Since 1946, a direct party. Uh, Texas? That would have been my guess. Uh, direct party. You have a connection to this state. Uh, California? Yes. All right. Yes. Go Bears. Yeah. So 1946, kind of an arbitrary date, but this is because I, I found an article that Adam Feldman wrote uh, of Empirical SCOTUS. Again, another friend of the podcast. Uh, he wrote one for SCOTUS blog a couple weeks ago. Uh, talking about this. And New York is in second place. And uh, so he says since 1953, the Supreme Court has heard more cases originating from California state court than any other state court system, in addition to uh, California leading the pack in, in number of cases it's had. 
Okay, fifth and final question. Which justice argued the most cases before being appointed to the Supreme Court? The most Supreme Court cases. Um, hmm. Was it the Chief Justice? That's correct. Do you know how many he argued? A ballpark? I would say about 60. No, he argued 39, and he won 25 of them. Uh, Thurgood Marshall was pretty close. He argued 32 cases, and I think his win rate was, uh, was a bit higher than, than John Roberts' win rate. But anyway, you guys did a great job, uh, and thank you so much for joining us, Jess. This was a lot of fun. So we'll be back later this week with a second episode because the Supreme Court is releasing more opinions on Thursday. They've got 14 to go, so they have quite a few to release in, in less than 10 days. Uh, so thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. Please also follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101, and you can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery and Tiffany Bates. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersat. For more information, visit heritage.org.